Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Greetings, humans. You have entered the command zone, your destination for all aspects of Elder Dragon Highlander. Enjoy your stay. How's it, everybody? Welcome back to a new episode of The Command Zone. I'm your host, Josh Lee Kwai. And I'm DJ. So, DJ, we're back for part two. Part two. Part two of much, our... Sh- much anticipated part two. M- look at how many papers we have in front of us. There's graphs, charts, all kinds of stuff. We are diving deep into more of our gameplay stats. Um, today, we're talking about the results of our study in regards to budget decks. So we teased it a little at the end of last episode. You know, a lot of people say Commander and Magic in general is a pay-to-win game. We're going to find out if that's true. Um, We're going to look at the colors and how the color pairs and the individual colors kind of lay out as far as their win percentage. Yeah, we talked about that. Basically, we're going to find out how much better blue is than the other colors. (laughs) Uh, we're going to also no, look actually, at the last, at the end of yeah. last episode, we were arguing with one another, with one another saying like, well, is it green? Is it blue? Like, is it, is it, you know? So I knew that joke was coming. <laughs> uh, it's cause it's a bad one. <laughs> Plus we're going to look at, um, which cards are kind of the winningest cards maybe are showing up more in winning decks. We're going to compare that with some of the stats from EDH rec. We got a lot going on, but before we get into all of that, I want to talk about the reason we're able to do this series of episodes at all, and that is because of our sponsors. If you go to cardkingdom.com slash command zone and use that affiliate link when you order your magic singles, products, sealed products, booster boxes, anything at all, you are directly supporting Game Nights, Command Zone, all of our content. You're giving us the resources that we need to do cool things like this stat series of episodes. Really Honestly, without all that stuff, there's no way we could do this because we had to hire a bunch of people. Do you guys see how many papers are in front Look of us? Look at this. How could we ha- even afford paper. the paper and the ink? Do you know how much ink for printers cost? <laughs> a lot. Okay. Uh, another one of our sponsors that helps us get all this stuff done is Ultra Pro. We've been talking about them a lot recently because they have the very cool guild-themed sleeves for Guilds of Ravnica. They have awesome play mats. Um, they have all kinds of cool stuff like the relic tokens. Have you seen these? Relic tokens are cool. Yeah, relic tokens are the tokens that go over the magic card tokens, and they just have like a nice cool counter on them that allows you to keep track of how many they are. They look really sweet. They have foil versions of them. Ultra Pro always killing it, and their quality has been just going up and up. Can't uh, 
thank them enough for supporting this show. And again, you can find that all their stuff at your LGS, online retailers, all kinds of things. And the final way to support the show is through Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash command zone. In fact, we call out one lucky patron every single episode. And this episode is dedicated to David Littlefield. David, you rock. Thanks, David. Okay, let's get into our stats. Let's continue previously on <laughs> the command zone. So in a previous episode, in the last episode, we went over some of the stuff, but we're just going to catch you up in case you missed that one really quick. We went through 313 Commander gameplay videos online. We used uh, gameplay videos from one of them, your buddy, Andrew, from MTG yep. Mudsta. MTG Mudsta, putting out tons of gameplay content. Awesome stuff. We also used Game Nights. That's right. A very small part of the sample size because turns out Game Nights uh, only comes out once a month and there's only been about 22 or 23 Commander games. Sometimes we used to play two. We I roll with us. Sometimes you used to play too. Back in the day. What happened to that, Josh? Um, the editing got harder. <laughs> uh, but also we added uh, Star City Games. They have Commander Versus correct. over there. So many seasons, great games there. And then also MTG Goldfish does their Commander Clash, which uses MTGO. Yeah, you guys might uh, have heard of, you know, Seth. Probably better known as Saffron Olive. That's Saffron Olive. That's where I've heard of it from. That's that's it. So those were the games we pulled from. Again, we're going to release our data. I guess not again. I haven't said it this episode. We're yeah. going to release our data um, for this episode. So it's going to be, there'll be a link to it in the show notes. You can check it out yourself and it's all verifiable. You can go watch those same videos and double check and make sure that all our data is Copacetic. We paid people to do this. Yes. Individuals are not double checking. Well, they, they could. <laughs> they, they could. They might. It's possible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> our data collectors, I want to give a big shout out to right at the top here, Eric Keller, who is our machine. Eric went through the bulk of the game, something like 150 all by himself. We also had help from Ashlyn Rose, the MTG cosplayer, Jordan G, and Josh Murphy, who is our editor for this show. And then we brought in a data analyst named Andrew Green, who's been in the data analyst field for about 10 years now and currently works at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. So Andrew is no joke. He's the one that crunched the numbers and came up with all the statistics that we're going to talk about. Okay. Let's jump into our first one here. We're going to talk about budget. It's a hot topic. People are always talking about budget. Yeah. And and it's really important. And I think it's a sticking point for the format because Commander is one of the few ways to play Magic that brings in every card just about with a, with a few exceptions that have ever been printed. You can play it in Commander. And you can pull your deck out and have $1,000 cards uh, right next to pennies, cards that cost pennies. So we did the online poll, and it was a very simple one. It said, on average, how does the monetary value of a deck, the total dollar cost, affect its win percentage? And 70% uh, of you out there said expensive decks win more. Only 2% thought that budget decks win more. And 28% said this does not affect win percentage. They thought budget did not have an effect on win percentage. 2% of you out there are really great optimists. I'm Holding down you. the fort for all the budget people out there. So uh, some of the quotes from some of the respondents and some of the people who voted in the poll. We've got the Magic Man Sam from Ristic Studies says, There's a lot to be said about presenting very mediocre threats and flying under the radar with suboptimal cards. I've seen many folks win with draft commons because opponents are quick to under, underestimate them and dismiss. You know, we know how powerful table politics can be. We did the stats episode and talked about Soul Ring. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. If you point to Soul Ring as a card that is objectively very powerful, and yet we found that it negatively in, impacted 
your win percentage. And we, you know, are assuming based just purely on the threat assessment from the table, the fact that it would put a target on you, then Sam has a decent point here where more expensive cards are scarier cards often and might draw hate, in which case there is that chance that it kind of hurts you a little. Yeah. Uh, Jason Krell says, if you look at where a lot of the cost is concentrated among expensive decks, the first culprit are lands. Having better, more efficient lands leads to more consistency, which leads to higher win rates. So Jason is saying that, you know, expensive decks win more and it comes into the play in that mana base. Yeah, and we hear this a lot, uh, or we heard this a lot in the comments from people, and I think that's a, a an assumption that I definitely have, which is part of the cost, a big chunk of it comes in just lands. And there's a lot of people that complain because like old school dual lands, Volcanic Island, Tropical Island, Underground Sea, all that stuff is restricted, super expensive, hard to get, and makes your deck a lot better, and people sort of point to that as a reason it's like that, gatekeeping is yes. what you're saying it's like you can't really play the format because look at all these expensive cards that i can't afford yeah yeah so i can definitely see jason's point there uh russell at rogue artificer russell's an old friend of the show one of our very early sort of uh listeners and people that interacted with us russ what's up he says it doesn't matter expensive cards aren't always better or even irreplaceable can't afford sylvan library oh no play a draw spell instead or anything else that will generate advantage over time deck synergy is more important than deck cost so russell holding down the fort for the budget i like that approach yeah, yeah. yeah. and he was saying this does not affect win percentage i don't think he was saying yeah. budget wins, wins more, more no. yeah uh edh academy says expensive decks tend to have the stronger cards that promote consistency slash have higher power level among other cards of its role and casting cost. Every deck is going to dawdle and do nothing some games, but more often than not, the expensive decks will take the pod. Uh, yeah, and that's just echoing what Jason said earlier. So let's take a look at what the data told us. I'm not going to throw it because we might need we it We have too again. many papers. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be just, just supposed to be papers throwing papers everywhere. the whole time. No, yeah. <laughs> okay. So this... Oh, oh, no, no. Sorry, I'm skipping a, port here, a part here. Um... DJ, yes. Before seeing the data, how would you have answered? Uh, on average, does how does the budget affect win percentage? I I want to be with the two percent of you out there, uh, but I firmly believe that expensive decks win more. Yeah, uh, it's hard for me to. It'd be nice. It'd be great if we were in the world where yeah, it didn't matter. It really would. I'm but, not saying that budget decks can't compete. Right. But I, I think that it matters when you can play those powerful spells. And Commander's a popular format. I've actually seen the price of certain cards go up and up and up. You know Secura Tribelder is o over $1.50 now? Wow. Wow. And they've just, reprinted a million times. I know. And it used to be just like a budget include immediately. And now it's just one of those cards that's kind of rising up. We've seen Eternal Witness shrug off reprints reprint over reprint, and over yeah. again, sitting at like $7 now. And so I think that it's just because our format is growing and popular and Wizards can't keep the printing up. And so, yeah, we're seeing expensive decks having these great cards, you know, doing better. That's yeah. what I think. Yeah, I, I would have agreed with you before we saw the numbers that uh, it would be hard for me to imagine that the expensive decks were at a disadvantage or even equal. They, they feel like they do have an advantage. How much of an advantage we'll get into, but the stats do reveal what we both agreed and what 70% of you thought, which is that we see the most expensive deck in a pod wins the pod about 29% of the time. That's a good so chunk. So that's a 4% increase. Again, um, we didn't go over this at the start, so maybe we should here. Assuming all this data is always assuming a four-player game, those are the games that we took statistics on, 
And that means sitting down at the beginning of a game, sight unseen, all the decks, before anybody's pulled it out, in a vacuum, everybody has a 25% chance to win the game. And then other factors come into play, like what colors you're playing, how expensive your deck is, do you get a turn one soul ring, uh, do you go first or not? All that stuff affects your win percentage. And the expensive deck in the pod, having a 29% win win uh, percentage, is 4% above expected, which is... a Pretty big chunk. I mean, let's not let's not lie I take, here. I take one and a third percent from you. I take one and a third percent from you. I take one and a third percent from you. Suddenly, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. So, it, it it totally matters, and you know, I think it's something we expected. I think that that percentage is maybe a little bit lower actually than I probably would have thought. I'm kind of glad it's not like 35 percent. Yeah. Yeah. I'm again. I we expected it, but it's a little bit heartening to know that it's not higher. Yeah, um, I want to say a related stat here is that we see that the average cost of a winning deck is about fifty or sixty dollars more than that of losing decks. So the gap is substantial, but not ridiculous. Like the average winning deck is not two hundred dollars or five hundred dollars more than the average losing deck. But fifty bucks, it, I guess it depends on where you're at on the budget level. Yeah. Like if you have a hundred dollar deck, oh, fifty bucks is huge. A fifty percent increase in your budget is huge. If you have a five hundred dollar deck, ten percent increase is fine. Right, so I don't really know how to take that data. I just wanted to mention it here. Um, what do you think is actionable about finding this out, though? We, so, okay, given that we live in a world which is not unexpected where, you know, if somebody spends a little bit more on their deck, they're going to have an advantage in the pod, about 4%. What do you think is actionable from, you know, the player's pr perspective when I'm playing now? I mean, we've learned that the soul ring thing teaches us so much about this. I think you need, to, I think number one, it's difficult to attack someone just because they have an expensive card. You know, like if they play, you play, they play, I don't know. What's a, they play a Get foil land. Cradle. They play a foil land instead of a normal land. And then you're like, that's the, that's the rich kid over there. Attack. <laughs> no, guy's cradle. They pay a but volcanic guy, but island. Here's the thing, but guy's cradle. They play is, a flooded strand. But guy's cradle is a threat in its own. It's not just their whole deck being a little bit more expensive. Right. Because like fifty dollars more, that seems like it could be a lot. Because that's like ten five dollar cards. That's enough to really move the needle in terms of how your deck is performing. It could also be one flooded strand that somebody else doesn't have if you're up at the five hundred dollar level or something. Yeah, I mean, then in that case, then that's one out of 99. That one card does not give you win percentages. Do, but it, it, yeah, that's not what's causing the 4% yeah. increase. Um, so you don't think most people know who in their play group or in their pod. They know in their play group for sure. In their play group, they know the person that's got the most cards, the most expensive decks, right? Yeah. It's going to get muddy though. In ours, I don't even know. I don't even know. Either. You might have more expensive decks than me, but I might also have more expensive decks than you. I did, we literally don't know. I really don't and know. And Jimmy and me, I can't tell either. I mean, Cassius, I know, has more expensive decks, but it's because he takes the good cards and gets foil <laughs> versions of them. So his decks aren't better than mine. He's I might just play foiling. like a Nether Void, and you're just like, what is that? That's expensive and does yeah. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so different playgroups, I think the lower you are on the budget spectrum, the more you're likely to know that one person is maybe ahead of the pack. That's true. If you're at $50, a $50 budget or $100 and someone plays a Sylvan library, like uh, the Twitter poll said, that's a $25 card. You might directly see the power level. That might be an actionable decision where you're like, oh, that's a that's a powerful card that's, that's showing the power level of, in the budget of your deck. 
attack that player. Here's the thing, though. I think you got to attack them bef- even if they don't play it. That's Just how because you, you know the playgroup and you know that player? Well, they have a 4% advantage. It's not from playing specifically Sylvan Library. It's because their deck is worth more. Yeah. So you, if you know that, then it might be like, barring other things like Soul Ring coming out or somebody else going first, you might need to juggle that a little bit. And again, this is a 4% thing. This is destroying a key permanent at a key time when otherwise you wouldn't. You might default to the more expensive deck, the more expensive how do you the the richer player the more wealthy player that's not a good way of putting yeah, it at all I, but I, how do you put it the, the person who has the more affluent player <laughs> i don't always play magic but when i do <laughs> i play with only foils um but but we've seen that i think through our data already we've seen that multiplayer can course correct for this stuff yeah i'm a big proponent of of tuned decks not throwing money at decks though so part of this rankles me. I firmly believe that a well put together budget deck can topple a deck where you just take all the most expensive modern staples and put them together. Well, I might have some good good news for you then. Um, what do you consider budget? I think I think a lot of people budget is different for different people. Yes. But I like budget at under a hundred dollars because that's like a dollar a card. Okay, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't have as good a news for the the people in that budget range. Here's what we found, though, and it's pretty interesting. There is some good news for the players that don't have tons and tons of money to throw at it. And and I will say, like, don't take this too hard. 4% of an increase for the most expensive deck in the pod is not insurmountable. Yeah. You can definitely overcome it. You just have to be aware of it to be able to start overcoming it. But we found something interesting. So what we found is the best winning percentages were from decks between $300 and $700. But it, it meant that actually after $700, the winning percentage just started to drop. They started to drop. Yeah. So $700 decks actually did better than like $1,000 decks. And we we sort of came to this realization, or or Andrew did, I suppose, that... <laughs> I guess the person did all the yeah, work. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there appears to be a threshold. There's diminishing returns to, to uh, the amount of expensive cards you can put it in a deck and it will continue to increase your win percentage somewhere around $500 or so once your deck gets to around that budget maybe it's 450 maybe it's 550 somewhere in that range it's it stops mattering you 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 basically have an equal chance against any deck at a certain so point so i bring a $2000 deck and you have your $500 deck and it's basically even now, my $500 deck is going to beat up on $300 decks, and your $2,000 deck is going to beat up a little on $300 decks. When I say beat up, I mean they're going to enjoy that That, that 4%. little bit of a boost, yeah. Yeah. But at a certain point, we reach the threshold where it stops mattering, and $5,000 deck just doesn't have much of an advantage over $1,000 deck. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Which one, is, thing, one thing, by the way, is that a lot of times the way that we, we parse money in terms of decks is what we have to pay. Yes. And... When we're running this data through stuff, it's just generating the market value right. essentially of the deck. So that means if you that have an Assassin's Trophy that you just uh, got from a pre-release, you didn't pay thirty bucks for it or twenty-five bucks or whatever it is, but that's what it's going to count as as part of your deck budget. Or that common is twenty-five cents. That common is fifty cents. That yes. bulk rare is a is you know a dollar. And for you, you're like, oh, they're playing budget cards, but that stuff still adds up. Remember when they calculate the EV of of commander decks that just get opened? The EV, the, the expected value of the precons, are like, over a hundred dollars most of the time. Yeah. Most of the time. Yeah. So I, I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable that you know maybe getting up to that range 
you know, could have a deck that competes against the entire the entirety of our format. And you being know, a little bit of a disadvantage doesn't sound like that big of a deal. You know, the guy that edits this show, Josh Murphy, is um, a college kid, and he's only been working for us part-time for a little while. He has a bunch of Commander decks. I actually met him at GP Vegas, which is how he now works here. Um, and he has a number of decks that are in the four and $500 range, and it's not unattainable for somebody that, you know, it's he's going to school full-time and, and, and a lot of the other things, and, and he's got school to pay for and, and whatnot. And I think that $400, $500 is, it sounds like a lot to certain people, but you can trade for cards and you can get a deck, deck there. Yeah. Think about a standard deck. Think it about can cost a modern Think about a modern deck or even like, let's not even think about legacy decks. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not. <laughs> I'm not even, and I'm even talking about other formats. Well, speaking of legacy, and I want to go back to that dual lands thing, the the old school duels, like the Taigas and the Plateaus and wherever, those aren't going. If your deck is $500, you don't have old school dual lands in it. There's no room for this in your budget. Right. And there's a there was a great quote from Andrew. He basically said to sum up this when we were corresponding about this threshold that you finally hit where, you know, it stops mattering so much how expensive the deck is. He said, adding Tundras to your deck will not increase your chance to win. So basically, there's this idea that, like, you need to attain the legacy level to have, you know, a chance $3,000 decks, yeah. full fetches, full duels, full shocks, this mana base that everyone keeps talking yeah. about, and you don't need to do that. A $400 deck, $500 deck, $600 deck does not have old school duels in it. It has shock lands. Shocks, it, temples, yeah. you know, It might lands, have like yeah. a fetch or maybe just the cons fetches, not the uh, Zendikar fetches, you yeah. know, because not the $70 fetches. Because honestly, your average card in that deck is $5 each. You can't have a bunch of $70 cards in it that's just going to skew, you know, you, obviously with and in basic that deck, lands, it, you can That kind of makes sense. You can you have the budget to buy that 10 or $20 card, that $30 card that really makes your deck hum. Right. But not all your cards. You know, you're not running a bunch of guys cradles and stuff in a $500 deck. You might normally. not even be running like one even. No, you're probably not because that would be literally half the budget of your deck. So you don't need to get to that top mythical restricted list tier to be competitive. And I think that's the sort of silver lining. That's the good news here. I mean... Like I said, I wish we could have come away from this and said that like $50 and $100 decks, they have totally the same amount of chances of $500 deck, but that's just... Yeah, but we're not... We're here to, we're here to read numbers. We're not here yeah. to like to lie to you. And that and a lot of you believe that as well. And it's true. More expensive deck does win more often. But it's actually kind of nice to know that many of us who play Magic regularly, who can field a modern deck or a standard deck and are willing to pay that level you know, and maybe have a few really solid cards that put a deck together with some synergy can tackle any commander table. I would also say too, like if you're thinking about like, what's my next step here? Do I want to go after that force of will or that one card for my already strong deck? Mm. It might not be worth it because you might not actually be pushing the percentage win chance up much at all. If it's already, if you add up all the cards on tapped out or whatever, and it's already in the $600 range, it might be better to just build another deck because you're not increasing the win percentage much at that point. And, and people, you know, and that's I, true. That's yeah. so true. It's like buy it for the right reasons. If you, if you're trying to, to eke out that win percentage, yeah, it's might, that might not be a good thing. I mean, it's kind of fun to force a will things. No, no. And you might <laughs> want one just cause that's a cool card and you want it and that's totally yeah. fine. But as far as like at a certain point, you're not making the deck much better. By but knowing, knowing it, going yeah. into it instead of saying, and also some people, they feel held back. They're like, we mentioned this earlier. It's like, well, I don't even have the dual lands in here. And they feel like their deck can't perform that they, that they're down on themselves, down on their deck because it's not like optimally tuned. Yeah. It doesn't matter. No, it, do, it really doesn't matter at a certain point. So if you have shock lands, maybe a couple of fetch lands and reasonable cards, 
then you know, and you're you're in that four hundred fifty five hundred dollar range, then you have a chance against anybody. So that, I like that. And by the, the way, you have a chance at a hundred dollars too, or three hundred dollars too. In between there, it's just like four percent. You know yeah, yeah. I mean? You're not yeah. like totally dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the difference between going first and not going first. In fact, going the first data is a, proves that Commanders Brew is completely <laughs> wrong on every yeah. single front. I've lost you to the Commanders Brew guys we've enough both, times. Yeah, we've both lost them before. So <laughs> yeah. you're, the decks can totally win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually less of a of a bump than going first is which we never wow. even noticed before. So Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to go on to the color power section here. So we've got a bunch of data points, and some of them I'm not sure what they mean. We'll go over them. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> um, so we have an online poll for color power as well, and the question was, what color increases a commander deck's average win percentage the most? Uh, so right now, so we had a, a little over 2,000 people weigh in, 51% of them thought blue was the color that increases a commander deck's average win percentage the most. I want to clarify this, actually. This is not like if you play a mono blue deck. This just means right. with blue in your deck, are you more likely to win? Or if not blue, which color in your deck makes you more likely to win? That could be paired with other colors. It's it's weighing the individual power of each color, mm -hmm. uh, but not when it's individually applicated. That makes sense. Okay. Green was second according to the voters at 31 percent that's a pretty big jump right there yeah so 20%. most half of people thought blue and a third of the people thought green black was 15 percent of people thought it was the highest win percentage color only two percent thought white <laughs> and one percent thought red oh man basically it's not that close most people think blue yeah. And, uh, and but you know what? Because I got reaction thought blue too. And you kind of talked me into green. Well, and, and, and that was knowing the land thing that we learned from last episode was that putting the most lands into play, just that was a huge indicator of if you were going to win the game. 42% of uh, winning players had the most lands at the end of the game. Yeah. And that made me, skewed me towards green, which I already thought was very close to blue, if not, you know, better besides that. Let's, let's look at some of the quotes from what other people thought. All right. Uh, Tronbon said, black by a country mile. Consistency is key, and the tutors from black are unparalleled. I see a lot of responses for blue. However, I'd argue that blue helps prevent you from losing, whereas black helps you to win, oftentimes because it has found you a blue card. So Tronbon is talking about tutors a lot here and mm -hmm. tutoring very powerful in a singleton format. And he understood the concept of it could be paired with other colors. Black could find you that blue card. I have a question for you. Yeah. Is a country mile longer than a regular mile? A country mile, you you have to walk with uh, holding a bunch of stuff. So yeah, Uphill it's way both longer. ways? Yeah, way okay. longer. In the snow? <laughs> I mean, I don't know why... We're both very much country boys. <laughs> I mean, I actually grew up kind of near the country, but I still don't know what a country mile is. Okay. Uh, the next one's from Leonardo Boccaletti. Good job. Uh, ramp and card draw are the pillars of consistency in Commander. Blue has better card draw. Green has better ramp. But since green's card draw is better than blue's ramp, I got to go with green on that one. That is a well thought out. I, I like that. It's pretty similar to what you said on the last episode. That's, so yeah, yeah, it's pretty well thought out according to Josh. <laughs> and by the way, it's it's convincing me too. I think I'd, I'd like to change my answer to green. Okay. Uh, Commander Live says, blue for one reason and two words, counter magic. Green is great and can do everything uh, and is a great support, but counter magic is the most powerful. A good defense is the best offense. A good defense doesn't allow the opponent to play. Um, the, the, the phrase goes a 
good defense is the best offense or good offense is the best defense or something like that. Yeah, good, a good offense is the best defense. So so he switched the saying around a little bit, but I, I can see the power of counter magic. It's the saying is offense wins games, defense wins championships. Ooh. I don't know what that has to do with any of this. That's um, closer to what he is. Is because because one of his like a best the best offense is a good, good defense. defense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or I like defense wins championships. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it, it's a really good point. Counter magic is something blue does. Nobody else really does, and it is the blanket answer for anything. So everybody else has a problem with certain things. Blue, besides stuff that says can't be countered, which there's not a ton of, um, has an answer for basically everything. Lands maybe not as much. It can always capsize them, but yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, one more. This just because I liked this quote a lot. This is from Enchanted Stevening. I also liked his name. Uh, he's <laughs> at. This guy has two puns. So Enchanted Stevening. <laughs> this must be Steve. His Twitter handle is at Blatant Stevery. <laughs> this guy is good. Double double pun. S- Steve, you're good at punning. Okay, he says furious that blue is winning. Green is the strongest color in Commander, not particularly close. Card advantage is attainable in both colors, but green lets you make use of extra cards much more effectively. And I think he means because it gives you so much mana that you can just cast more of the extra cards you draw. Um, right. Okay. People are passionate about this topic. So we already talked about what we thought. We we, we both kind of thought green. Yeah. But we thought blue was close. I think blue is close, yeah. All right. Um, oh, I, I need to say a quick caveat here. Sorry, before we reveal the stats. So Commander Versus um, has a, they're in our sample size. They have a few cards that they have a soft ban on. Notably, Cyclonic Rift is on that list. This doesn't mean they never play it. It means that it's represented a little bit lower in our sample, maybe. EDH Rec, for example, I think has it in like 53% of all decks. Mm-hmm. And we're at like 39 or four, somewhere around 40%. Yeah, and we were a little bit concerned why the numbers didn't match yeah. up. Uh, but it actually makes sense thinking about our sample size. So one card, I don't think it affects these numbers really at all because we don't know whether that card would even be drawn and then played in any given game. Um, and it's a few percentage points. But it's something I want to be clear on. Commander Clash also... Uh, banned Cyclonic Rift, but they did it very recently, so it wasn't really banned for mm-hmm. almost any of the episodes that we uh, used in our study. Um, they Commander Clash, I also want to say, they banned Soul Ring, Mana Crypt, and Vault um, at a certain point, like halfway through last season, so some of the games we did didn't have those, but that didn't affect our study again because we only looked at games where you played Soul Ring turns one through three, which if it's banned in their group, the, it never was part of the data. It would only really matter is if one or two players is banned for when the whole table that would just doesn't... be mean dj you're banned from having soul ring in your deck what about you josh no i can still no, have i'm it. good yeah <laughs> but when the whole table doesn't have it that means that no one has a chance of drawing it so it's just not going to enter into the data and those are all colorless cards so they're not going to necessarily affect any color more than the other and again they only did that fairly recently so it wasn't for all the data and i think that accurately reflects the fact that the meta out in the wide world of commander is going to have some house rules and things like that that happen yeah. so i like that a little of that is occurring so, okay. so reminder, we're thinking blue at the top, then green, then black, then white, then red, according to Twitter. Yep. Uh, some people are thinking green's a little bit higher up, including us. Okay. Where should we start at the bottom or the top? Let's start. Let's work our way to the top. Okay. So the lowest performing color. Oh, here's another thing I want to explain really quick. We are ranking these according to performance over expected. So this is a complicated thing because you can't just look at a pot and say, did the red deck win? Because red could be in three of the decks. Oh, yeah. So if red's in three of the decks, you would expect it to win 75% of the time in that pod, right? And then another game, red's in two of the decks, and it would have a 50% chance to win in that pod. Oh, that's hard. And all of a sudden, you start getting into this weird statistical thing, which is I 
this is the whole reason we got a data analyst because I ran into this and I was like, well, I don't know how to do that. Because if if we're starting off, we're starting off at the bottom, right? Like if red, if everyone's playing red at the table, then it has a hundred percent chance to win, right. and then that data gets messed up. Right. So what uh, Andrew did is he looked at its performance over expected. So in the games where it had a fifty percent chance to win. What did it actually win? Did it that win means- something like 48% of the time? Then it would be negative 2%. So these numbers are going to be how much a color either adds or takes away from your, that 25% chance win percentage that we talk about. Really, he did the math to make sure these numbers are relevant. Right. Yeah. So the color that is the worst performing, and it, it, it has a negative 4% performance rating, which means... Let me understand this. If I play this color... You are now have a 21% chance to win rather than 25. I dropped down 4%? It's the same as having... Uh, it's it's the inverse of having the most expensive deck. So if you could convince the people with the expensive decks in your playgroup to, to play, play white... Revealed! Because it it's is white. white. So white is the worst performing color by a country mile. Um, oh yeah, we're just call back just after call back here. Uh, it, it is a negative 4%. And this is not just mono white. No, this is white in your deck at all. On average, takes four percentage points away. It's uh, it's pretty big. So we knew white was not good, although we thought red was worse. According to the Twitter poll, they would were you pretty put, close. To would tied. you have put um, white last or second? I would have put white. I last. think so too, because I think in recent years red has really gotten a bunch of tools, whereas white just hasn't. Yeah, uh, a lot of that impulsive draw stuff. I actually kind of like red. Yeah, r- red's pretty good. Um, so if we go up one, so in fifth place, white, negative 4%, very bad. The next color is red, but red actually does add 1% to, its its performance rating is 1% in the positive. So it's a 5% different th- difference than white. That's even more than... Yes. And it's the next closest to white, so you know that the other colors are... The only thing, Much better than, than The thing white. that brings red down is just pairing it with white. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, don't play Boros. That's the, like the worst. Oh my gosh! But that actually confirms something we've thought for a long time because they're the bottom two colors. So I'm assuming, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about color pairs, which are slightly different but close yeah. uh, later. But red and white are bottom two. All right. So the third place color is blue. Whoa. So well, what's the number for blue? How, mu- blue how much is in third place? Is about a three percent. Uh, a positive 3% in its performance over expected. So, so. we jumped from 1% to 3% with blue. That seems like a pretty big jump. Yeah. And and blue is definitely like a strong color that will help you win. It's not it's, yeah, not, it's not an not anvil around your neck that's dragging you down like white is. But it's not the 51% that Twitter thought. It's not my gut reaction that like blue's the best. Yes. It is not even second place. So that is interesting. Um, green is actually in second it is not the top color i can do the process of elimination (laughs) green is in second place correct so green is a plus a positive four percent on the uh performance over expected so um and and that makes black in number one at five percent now there's something i want to say here really quick which is that Blacks, we're we're doing a little rounding on the percentages just to make it easier to listen to. But black is actually four point nine two percent, and green is actually four point four nine percent. So they're actually only separated by half a percent. Yeah, which because Less of sample percent, size yeah. is basically even. I mean, you can maybe say black's a little bit better, but you know, sample size is not a million games. So we're just these are the numbers they're giving. But but 
At the very least, black and green are close to even, which is a surprise because most people did not put black as one of the top two colors. It was only 15% of people on the uh, Twitter poll thought that black was the strongest color. I didn't think black was the strongest color. You and I both thought it was green and then blue. Yeah. And yeah, and, and black is number one and green is number two, although green and black are very close. Thought so, experiment. Yes. Uh, uh, the difference between not having white in your deck and having black in your deck that's a 9% swing. If you have a deck with black but no white and somebody else has a deck with white, they're in big trouble. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge problem. By the way, I really like black-white decks. <laughs> well, and we'll see that black and white together actually do okay, but that of course oh, okay. of course they would because black's going to bring it black white up. Black up, white up. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So first of all, do we believe the stats? Is this believable? And I think... Here's something I believe that white is that bad. And upon upon discussion, because we found out the data, we were surprised. And then we talked about it. And, you know, some people brought up some good points too. I think so the tutoring sense. thing is the thing. That's what black does the best. And yeah. I want to look at CEDH decks and oh. say that many, many of them are tutor based. And tutor for their combos and tutor for their wins. Anything that's combo based is going to have a strong tutor package in it. And many of the very good decks over you know the years have been the Yisans and the Tazris and tutors on a stick. Mm. Um, and most of the other good decks will tutor for specific pieces and win in a specific way. Zur is another tutor on a stick. And so that the fact that tutors are powerful is something that maybe even overcomes the ramp from green. Uh, it's a way to, I win now. Yeah. Goes along with that going first thing that we were talking about, where it's like when you see that opening, if you're in black, you probably can take advantage of it. If you're in green or blue, not that you can't, but you just have a slightly harder time because you might have to not, you know, you might not have the piece at that moment. Black's going to be able to get the piece at the moment they need it. So Very interesting. That's just a theory, right, of why black maybe is coming out slightly ahead here. And then green has the land ramp, which is almost evening out this tutor power. Interesting. I that's mean, great. And, and green has great tutors. Green has great tutors too. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that's my theory. I, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, we've, we've seen that. Uh, we also know that black is very strong against creatures. They have great board wipes, great single oh, target removal. And we see that people from last week, people die most often from creatures. And so the ability to have that critical board wipe to answer that threat uh, with instant speed removal, with the you know answers to planeswalkers and stuff like that, uh, that could be a part of it as well. Black also just kind of does everything pretty, pretty well. well rounded, yeah. Right, it draws cards just fine. Yeah, it can ramp. It has the cabal coffers type of stuff going on. It has ritual type stuff to ramp. Mono black is pretty good. Yeah, and so I think that may be part of it too. Is that it's really good in tutors, and it's not that far behind in the other areas. And it's kind of the argument that I forget who uh, somebody had about green, which was that it does card draw almost as good as blue and ramp a lot better. So therefore, I'll pick it. Well. Black may be, I do card draw almost as good as blue, and I do ramp, eh, you know, a recent approximation or a decent approximation and, of green. And green can't board wipe. Yeah, and I tutor for anything. So yeah. I can always. I tutor for every, anything. Green only does creatures. I actually board wipe. Green, I mean, what is if it? If they get behind on a board, they're in big trouble. Yeah. Um, black falls short when terms of removal of artifacts and enchantments. Maybe yeah. that, I don't know. 
But it seems like as we're weighing their advantages, they are kind of balancing each other pretty well. It's super interesting. Uh, I'm surprised blue is so low. I would have thought it would be a little bit closer to those other two because it's it's a couple percentage points blue down. Blue is very limited, but we've seen what they do be very, very powerful. I am a little bit surprised about how low they are because we know the power of Cyclonic Rift. We know the power of uh, counter spells and card draw and stuff like that, but I don't know. Maybe well, what do you just... think about this theory? What's the hardest color to play? The hardest color to play? I mean, blue. Yeah, because I think counterspells, while being extremely powerful, are extremely difficult to play. Mm -hmm. Because when you're countering something, you have to do it at a time when you don't know exactly what's going to happen with it, right? You don't know if it's going to attack you. You might not even... You, like, to use counterspells well, you have to have a lot of knowledge, Like, right? I'm going to stop your combo piece. Well, I can't wait. I need to know what your combo is, know what that card does, how it interacts with the rest of your stuff, know if that's the right thing to counter. Yeah. It's a difficult... So, you know, some of this might be that green, I, th I feel like green is a little easier to play. Green does what it does, and that that's not disparaging against green players. Like, I play green like crazy, and you guys have all seen it on game nights. Decks, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I do feel it's a slightly easier to play than blue. It's not like a huge gap. Yeah. But... I mean, I can cast Greater Hoof. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But one thing that I that I can bring up is that my first episode on my first command zone episode, I talked about control yeah. and how counter spells actually, you know, when answering a single threat in a multiplayer game, they're not actually that good. They're only good when you can protect yourself, when you can answer that one critical thing. And when you have a very strong plan for them. Exactly. Yeah. Which and is it feels like they need that some sort of support. They need they need something to go with it. They aren't just this good in all situations card. And it feels like a cultivate is a good in all situations card. A demonic tutor is a good in all situations card. Yeah. I mean, you have to know what to get with the tutor. So a cultivate. Yeah. So what can we, uh, what's actionable about this information is the next question. I mean, don't play don't white. Don't play white. Man, white is just so bad. It is separated by 5% from all the other colors. No other Gosh. color is separated by 5%. I'm Only wondering, white. I'm wondering if it's like, what in the data is doing this? Because I feel like I have decks that have white in it that are good. Yeah, I don't know. And that win. But you're, it doesn't mean you can't. It's just a percentage, de like it's hurting your chances. It doesn't mean that it's taking your chances so to zero. So I'm like, I'm that much better. I overcame <laughs> adversity to destroy you, you might, with this mono white might, deck. I mean, you have to check your wins. Are you playing against other white decks? Oh, you're right. That might be evening out. You see what I'm saying? Some of my favorite decks have white in it. Yeah, but if you're playing against three other white decks, then your negative four percent is not actually the same because they're all. You know what I mean? You're I mean, evening you're out. Right. Yeah. Well, let's look at the monocolored deck performance here. So this is. So wait, do you think that this is going to shift? Because mono performance is sometimes a little bit different. Yeah. Black, black might be more of a support color. But I think we, yeah, to me, black's the best mono color. And, okay. and you, I mean, I would have said that before. I've seen any data, obviously. Mm -hmm. I, th I think it's the strongest in that black is better at doing draw and ramp by itself, you know, with no help. Green would probably be next for me. Um, I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah. When it's in monocolor, so. when it doesn't have any other help. And, I, and by the way, I have a, a monocolor deck of each color and green is pretty powerful, but black, I do have to say, black is pretty good. When I've played monocolor black decks, they're the closest to feeling like two-color decks. <laughs> All the other ones feel like they're missing You're something. Right. I think one thing that we might have left out in terms of black is that they do have really solid finishers. Yeah. 
they can win a, the game. That's a good way of like Torment of Hellfire and Exsanguinate and, and like Rise can, of the Dark Realms and all of this kind of stuff is a very powerful I win the game now cards. And you can tutor for it at the moment when you're ready to win the game, when the shields are down or whatever else. Like what's the blue card that's just like, if I have enough mana, I will win the game if this resolves. Expropriate. It's true, but uh, one thing that also might, I mean. And they can force a will your way to stop it. But I mean, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. (laughs) That's pretty good. But not all, yeah, not everything plays expropriate. And, you know, Cyclonic Rift is sort of their next closest. Cyclonic Rift is pretty good, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. I guess every color has that sort of I win the game. There's Crater Hoof trying for the hordes for oh, green, green but, has it you for need, sure. but you need a presence, right? Does like white have blue it? can cast expropriate with nothing else. Torment of Hellfire, nothing else. If you've got enough mana, you can just win the game with those cards. Does white and rev, red have any of that? Red's got probably Perforos, I'd say is the closest to that. Insurrection used to be a thing, but it isn't a good, as good anymore. There's a lot of cre- decks with very few creatures anymore or ways you to You told everyone it. to play sack outlets yep. and now it's bad. <laughs> white. There maybe that's one of the reasons it's bad, because I can't think of the white equivalent of expropriate. Someone's gonna tell us in the comments down below, like the white spell that wins, but I think that people are gonna start saying stuff like secure the wastes. That's not it doesn't count. Because yeah. you need the real finisher. You need Crater Hoof after that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to the monocolor deck performance. Now, I want to say we have small sample sizes there on all of these because there wasn't a ton of monocolor decks in the sample. There were only 23 game-winning mono black decks, but they won at a 30% rate. Small sample size. Yeah. But, I mean, it is pretty good, and it might, because they're all small sample size, this might be the right order in between them, basically. Uh, green was next at 21%, only 12 decks. Again, that's game-winning decks. White, mono white was third at a 21% win rate with only eight decks. Um, Mono Red was fourth with 18% win rate, only 15 decks. And Mono Blue was 17% win rate with only nine decks. One thing we do see is the mono-colored decks just underperform the 25% expected. Besides Mono Black, they all don't do that great, Um, regardless of whether you agree with the order. And I think we can talk about the order and what we think, but the sample size is so small. I feel like one more or less win from each yeah, one could we'll be, ba- we'll vastly be quibbling, change it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it does make sense because I do think that mono, mono white, might be. I don't know. I think that I think that mono red is a little bit weak, especially if you're not playing a few commanders. Like I think Perforos and Neheb are like, and Cranko are like powerhouses. Kiki is pretty good. Kiki is very, very good. There's four though. Doretti. What does white have? I think mono color is just going to naturally be at a disadvantage because every color has things they can't deal with. And so that that's part of the problem. I, I don't know. Mono blue being last is really not where I would think it was. I, don't think, I, I think of Talrand. Although Talrand, it's hard for Talrand to win a four-player pod. You just can't counter everything. Baral, we know, You're very right. good in 1v1. But again, you're you're right. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't work as translate as well to a four-player pod. Memnarch's pretty good. People just kill Memnar because it's scary and they don't like losing their stuff. Yeah, I'm just saying. It's it's a good deck if it gets off the ground. Braids. braids. Mono blue braids. <laughs> Anchoring everything. But see, uh, but it only has one one sample size. It's Teferi, Temporal Archmage. That's if a good all one. the mono blue decks were that, then it would be uh, <laughs> the winningest. We solved it. <laughs> Actionable data. Play braids and Teferi, Temporal Archmage. Yeah, I like how you put braids up there. <laughs> just, that's, I have, it's your I have personal deck. data. <laughs> I, it works. Okay, so next we're going to talk about the win percentage by color pairs. 
Now, the data we're about to talk about is when the color pair appears in the deck. So it's not a deck that's just blue, green, or just, you know, black, red. It's, for instance, if Moldrotha was the commander, this deck, the deck would be counted as a blue, black, a blue, green, and a black, green uh, color pairs for the, for the statistics. So it's just looking when colors pair together, how do they perform? Well, that makes sense too, because our our single color data is like when white is in any deck. Right. So our multicolor data, our two color data is when it's in any deck right. as well. It could be so when it's alone, but across. also combined with when it's with another, you know, a third color and a shard or a wedge or when it's with four colors or five colors, obviously. That makes sense. Okay. So do you know one thing that I appreciate is that it's a, it's a, it's full scaling all the way up. It doesn't do something weird. Like start right here and make a <laughs> <laughs> sure. Good job. Andrew. A big difference. Good job in the statistics there. Okay, so what we see here is that, and this is, you, if you're not watching on YouTube, I don't know if we can go through the, the percentage of all color pairs. We're just going to talk, talk generally about them. Or we you can pop over to YouTube or you can just get the data and see for yourself. So the white decks are basically all at the bottom of the heat. Oh my gosh. White, blue, white, black, white, red, white, green. Yep. White, black does the best of all of them. And that makes sense because when you're pair it white with the best color, it's going to do a little bit better, but it's still below all the other color pairs. So Jesus. any color pair with white is in the bottom four. That's how bad white is. Yeah. I'm, lear I'm learning stuff. Like, I'm not surprised when you say like, oh, white's not very good in commander. But when I see this data, it's just shocking. Yeah, it doesn't pair very well with anything. Now, black decks basically do the best, but there is an outlier. So blue, black, Demir, not Demir decks. So we're talking about, again, blue, black, it could be with another color. So Moldrotha would count. That should there. be good. Right? Because it's the best color with the third best color. So it should be... You would think that uh, black green would be the best. Yes, I... And then either black blue or green um, blue would be second. Yes. And we don't see that. But uh, I would think that black blue would be... Right. Uh, would be the second best. But we don't see that. We see that the blue black color pairing is actually in fifth place. It's the, Just after all the whites. Yeah. It's, or sorry, sixth place. It's, it's in the number six position. So for whatever reason, wow. the synergy between those two colors is just not... It's not gelling as well as we would expect. So do you think it's it's Demir decks, like just Demir that's dragging them down? Because we know if there's a Moldrotha deck out there, it's doing pretty well. So is it just the Demir pairing that's... We have a win percent by color co by color combination that has all the different color combinations. Monos, pairs, wow. wedges, everything. And we see that blue, black, Demir specifically, blue, black decks that don't have other colors, doesn't do well. It does like... 18% win percentage. But we have a low sample size. There's only eight of those decks. It's hard to tell from our sample size. Yeah, if even, if even three of those were mill decks, which have a hard time winning, that could definitely skew the data. But whatever it is, I think we can say that blue-black is not is underperforming. It's not, it's not horrible, but it's middle of the pack where you would expect it to be near the top. Now, the one I want to point out that I think is a little bit on the other end, it's overperforming slightly, is black-red. So you, wow. so red is the fourth um, best color, and it's paired with the best color here. You would expect it to be like the fourth best, maybe fifth best like deck. Less than Simic, less than Demir, certainly. Yeah. Right, yeah, but it's actually the second highest performing uh, color pairing when it's included in decks. Again, this can be with decks with any other colors in it also. When black and red, something's going on there, and which is really interesting because when I think of black-red decks, I think, eh, 
Like, yeah. I'm not like, boy, that's scary. I'm, yeah, I'm really not afraid of black red decks. Are you afraid of Grixis decks? But it's not, or I, Jund decks? I mean, because Jund. It's not, because it's certainly not Mardu decks. Yeah, true. I mean, Jund is a little bit. Jund it, and Grixis. It, yeah. That's really what. So it's either it's either Rakdos, Jund, or Grixis that are represented here. Well, there's four color decks now, so uh, you're not thinking but, of you're not thinking of the white list deck, the blue list deck, and the green list deck, which all you know should be good. But then all the other ones except for the whitelist deck have white in it, so. Yeah, but maybe there's a point at which white becomes, and and we see this. So when we go to the wins by color combo, we see that the white four color decks. There's two of them, sorry, three of them in like the top ten. Brea. And so what happens, I think, is white at a once you have four colors, the other three can make up for whatever white is doing that's wrong. You can just pick and choose the tiniest white cards that are it's actually like good in their format. Tutor. And then Source of Plowshares and you only yeah. play and, and you know what? From experience, when you have a deck that's four color and has white in it, you're running four or five white cards and that's it. Yeah. And so the very best of the best white cards might be fine. I don't know. This is just all theory. But we see something's going on with Black Red where it just overperforms what it should. And I'm not seeing it in just Black Red and Rakdos. So I'm thinking it's it's Jund or... It's Jund. Uh, it's Grixis. Or Grixis. It's, um, and it's the four-color pairing. And maybe. I do see it in Jund. I, I, I see Jund decks like... Um, yeah, Jund decks are very good. Are good. And Grixis decks too. So Yeah. Uh, and, and we see what we think we should, which is that the black-green decks do win the most. And those are the top two colors together. I mean, that would mean Jund decks are pretty strong. One of the interesting things is that of the two-color pairings specifically, so decks with only two colors, mm -hmm. Simic is the highest performing. Interesting. It has a 39% so other... win percentage, a high win percentage. And there's 19 decks, so not a huge sample size. But still, it's... It's very strong. There's something with Simic going on where when they're paired just with each other, though. It's good. It's very good, yeah. And then, so I'm thinking that that's interesting. Yeah. So I, don't, I would think that then uh, Sultai would be very, very good. Which is funny because Sultai underperforms um, Jund. Jund does better than Sultai. Some of this is are people just building their deck wrong, decks so, wrong. Is our data a little bit off? Is I, it the commanders that are helming? It? I think when like, you what? get the problem is that when you get down to this specific three color pairing versus this one, the sample size is too small. Okay. So the color pairs overall, we have a bunch of samples. There's like 90 decks that have black and green in them, and you can kind of come to a better conclusion. But when you say like, is Jund better than Grixis? There's not enough times where those showed up to, to really make that call. Like one win different, one flip of the coin could vastly change the numbers, I think. So, the so what we're size. landing on here is is not these little bits of difference between them. It's just when you start combining like Simic, when you have like um, Golgari like the, and Jund and those things, those are really powerful. Even Grixis are powerful combinations and white is just the worst. Yeah. Basically, until and, you and get to four colors, colors too. once you get to four colors, white's okay. But before four colors, white is dragging you down. So that's uh, actionable data right there. Yeah. So wins by number of colors. We wanted to look at how decks did, if there was an optimal amount of colors you wanted in your deck. So before looking at the data. I actually haven't seen this data. Okay. So we've got one color, two color decks, three color decks, four color decks, or five color decks. What do you think... I want to say four and five color decks have a low sample size, so I'm I'm not 
real comfortable with those numbers being solid, but the other ones have quite a few. So between two and three kind of. I think that three, when you when you round out and have more options, you're going to have more opportunities to have exactly the right cards or the cards that work together to make the deck more synergistic. And we find that the slight edge goes to two color decks. They are slightly, they win slightly higher uh, at a higher rate than three color I decks. I feel like I've gotten everything wrong <laughs> in all of then, these episodes because mana base shouldn't be a thing. I mean, people can build their mana bases incorrectly, but you don't need the dual lands to make the mana base work. Well, so, I think that's a good news for budget players, which is if two color decks are basically even slightly better than three color decks, you don't need as much you know, you don't need as many crazy dual lands and fetches and everything for a two-color deck. And basics, it's yeah. just as powerful as a three-color deck. And I want to say the reason that three-color decks on average do worse than two-color decks is because if you're playing three-color, you're more likely to have white <laughs> in your deck. So if you're... That makes sense because with three colors, there's only 10 pairings and right. most of them, like a good percentage of white. Right. Whereas there's only four white decks... Right. Two color Six pairs. don't have white, basically, in the two-color pairs, whereas more have white in if the three-color pairs. If we correct for that data, does... Jeez, that's so funny. <laughs> uh, and four and five do very well in our sample, but again, there there's less of those decks, so we're not sure. But it looks as if, right now, based on our data, there's only 32 four-color decks in this because uh, study. The, the down, because the disadvantage of white gets negated when you have, have so few of those cards. And you're so only playing then the it best just white cards. skyrockets up, giving you options to play more types of effects. Jeez. Okay, so... That will do it for our look at the colors. And now we're going to move on to our final portion here, which is the winningest cards. So because we had all the deck lists, we're able to go through them and sort of pull out what cards were not only showing up in decks the most, but were showing up in the winning decks the most. There's... Well, the disclaimer is that we didn't watch the gameplay to know if this card was actually played. The, yeah, it was impossible to watch all 313 games all the way through. Uh, you know, that turns a couple hundred hours into a thousand hours worth of stuff. So we can only comment on if the cards were in the deck list. And you would expect, you know, over a large enough sample size, which again, our sample size is not huge, um, that that would sort of even out because cards are going to get played at a certain rate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so all of this is grain of salt, basically. And I want to say too that but we can we can check it right because yeah, we're we can check it. we're checking it against uh, EDH Rec. Right. So EDH Rec compiles all the deck lists on the internet or a bunch of them and sort of gives us a list of most played cards in decks that people build on the internet. It has no comment to make on how those cards do once they get into a game situation. Did they win? Did they lose? It, it it's. It, there's just no way for that data to cross over. Now we have some gameplay data here and we're able to. Uh, reference the EDH rec stuff and compare it and see what we see. And I want to say that the overwhelming takeaway is that our sample is very representative of what EDH rec is. We, if we look at the top played cards, for instance, here's the top five white cards played in our sample. Swords to Plowshares, Return to Dust, Enlightened Tutor, Path to Exile, Sun Titan. Here's EDH rec's top five played cards. Swords to Plowshares, Path to Exile, Sun Titan, Enlightened Tutor, Wrath of God. So only Return to Dust makes an appearance in our sample that is not in the top five of EDH Rec. And on EDH Rec, Return to Dust is like seventh most played It's not card. even that far down. Yeah. So it's not like there's a big gap. And we see this across the board that mostly the same cards 
are the most played cards in our sample that are the most played cards in EDA Trek. Now, this that might make a lot of sense yeah. because if you're your number, there could be a few things. Number one, these are people using resources online. They could be using EDH Rec to build their decks. Uh, EDH Rec, they are me- measures popular cards. Yeah, they 100 are. Like I'll tell you, when I build ge- decks for game nights, of course I use EDH Rec to help yeah. me. Yeah. So, so that's part of it that feeds into it. Then also, people see these media. They see your deck on game nights. They see an awesome deck on Commander Versus, and then they build it, and that data goes into EDH Rec. Yeah. So it is sort of a of, of something that feeds itself. It's a feedback loop in in, in many ways. different ways. Yeah. yeah. Which is, I think is good, right? It shows that our the sample we're looking at is not like wildly different than the commander metagame at large. It's it's basically it helps validate some of our other numbers in other areas. Right. It basically, you know, the percentages might be slightly different, but in general, like we're looking at the same cards getting played that EDH Rec is seeing, and that is what the commander meta sort of globally looks like, mm-hmm. as far as we know, and this sort of bears that out. So having said all that. There's a few things, and we're not going to go through. We printed off this list that has like the most played cards in every color and the winningest cards in every color. So how often it shows up in the list versus how often it shows up in the winning decks of that color. And then we have EDH Rex stuff. It's too much data for us to go over. So I, there's just some highlights that and I. There's also look at. there's not a lot of there's not a lot of difference between them. Yeah. Overall, we EDH Rec top list is good. People play them, and those cards win for the most part. There aren't a lot of anomalies blaring at us, except for a few little things that can give us some ideas about what we might be un- mis-evaluating. Yeah, and they're very and they're small, so we could be wrong about this stuff based on sample size and whatever. There are a few cards that sort of overperform, right? So if you look at white, about twenty-seven percent of all the white decks in the study have enlightened tutor in them. That's not surprising. EDH Rec puts that at twenty-nine percent in EDH rec data. So that's about right. However, when we look at winning decks with white in them, we see that Enlightened Tutor is showing up in 39% of winning white decks, which means that it's jumped up. It's decks that uh, are playing white but don't have Enlightened Tutor are losing at a disproportionate rate. And if it does have Enlightened Tutor, it's winning. So that card maybe, maybe again, we don't know if the card is played, is having some effect on win. So this this is particularly interesting because we know how bad white is. Yes. And anything that helps move the scale in terms of white could be very powerful. One of the reasons why we said black was so powerful is those tutors, yes. tutor effects. And so now we're seeing a tutor effect in white tremendously overperform. It it feels right. It yeah. feels right that this is a this is a powerful card and that when you can mimic black's successful strategy in white, you do better. And and maybe they're pairing it Enlightened Tutor with those other colors in the four color decks. Artifact decks. And things yeah. like that. Yeah, and the Enchantment artifact. decks, stuff yep. like that. Yeah. So that that is something that kind of jumps out at us. Another thing is that on EDH Rec, their fifth most played card is Wrath of God, which doesn't appear in our top ten most played cards. And you had a theory about this, which I kind of uh I kind of agree with. Yeah, I think Wrath of God is kind of a relic. It's left over from when that used to be the um, the amazing quintessential board wipe. And now I don't play it in most of my decks. It's not good enough anymore. They've just made enough better replacements that even Fumigate or something is going to see I like, more Yeah, play. I, like, I like Fumigate. I, I like the flexible ones. Cleansing yeah. Nova. Yeah. I like even other board wipe effects. I just like way more. And so Wrath of God, 
kind of just a leftover. And and this more recent data that we have here from Commander Gameplay, just don't play it anymore. Yeah, so EDH Rec maybe still has Wrath of God on its top, you know, its top whatever, 50 list of white cards, whereas it's not actually being played that much anymore. And that's just leftover from, you know, years of putting Wrath of God in the decks out of, you know, sort of convenience. Um, so a card we see that's winning slightly disproportionately more um, than you would think is Moldrifter in blue. So it's in X amount. I forget. Uh, it's it's not in the top five most played blue cards, but it does come in there, as yeah. the fifth winningest card. I think it jumps like three or four slots yeah. to become just slightly more uh, winning than you would expect it to. And that is a little bit of a surprise for me because I think that Mold Drifter is best in decks that can abuse the body. Mm-hmm. I personally don't think a 2-2 flyer is that significant in our format. In other formats where the damage or the body is is way more impactful, it can make a big difference. Uh, but in my mind, unless you're abusing that body by sacrificing it to Birthing Pod, blinking it over and over again, then I don't actually... I don't actually like Moldrifter that much. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. It could be that when it is used, it is so powerful. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. That when you do blink it a couple of times, that ability is... You blink it once and it's amazing. You you draw two cards and Birthing Pod this into a six drop and it's great. You know, you cast it again from your graveyard uh, with Moldrotha and that's amazing. Yeah, so it might just be so powerful in the instances where it is good that that's kind of bumping its percentage. Could be. Uh, and the last one I wanted to mention was Decree of Pain. So Decree of Pain is showing up as our third most winning card in black. So is that six black black? Yes. It's in 26% of all um, winning decks that have black in them. And it's not in the top five on EDH rec, although it's I don't it's uh, number 14 on EDH rec at 14% of decks. Toxic Deluge is actually ahead of it in EDHREC's top five in 15% of decks. So Decree of Pain outperforming Toxic Deluge uh, in our study a little bit. But not showing up in as many decks on EDHREC. Interesting. This is in winning decks. Yeah. So Decree of Pain is slightly overperforming. And again, sample size and everything. Well, let me... Yeah, again, sample size and everything. We have to say that all the time. Yeah. It's like grain of salt. (laughs) But... It's fun to talk about. Yeah. One thing that I kind of think about is that Toxic Deluge helps... Keeps you from losing the game. Right. And that's important yeah. to win the game, but Decree of Pain really does win you the game because it wipes it the board and you draw cards in order to put you way ahead of your opponents. Yeah, we should say that's a board wipe that for each creature that is destroyed, you draw a card. So and it has the flexibility of being able to be cycled. And you can cycle it. And, yeah, exactly. It's it's very powerful. Uh, it's not the best board wipes because it's so conditional because you have to play it so much later in the game. That's what I was about to ask you. So are you going to play Toxic Deluge if you can only have one or Degree of Pain? Toxic Deluge. Me too. <laughs> duh. <laughs> You're like, yeah, duh. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so I don't know. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we should be playing Degree of Pain. It's possible. It's possible. I, I don't like the CMC cost, but it is what it is. But it wins games, Josh. It's true. It's do you, do you true. not like the CMC cost of expropriate? It's <laughs> a good wins point. Wins games. That's a good point. Okay. Um, Really quickly, we're going to go over the top, not all the cards, just in the same way. We've got the top 20 non-land cards just across all winning decks. And this is because we just did colors and that didn't bring up the colorless cards. And so we wanted to look at 
sort of what was appearing in winning decks overall. And this can I be, guess at number one? There'll be colored cards in there. Yeah, Soul Ring. Yes, Soul Ring <laughs> is number one. Because um, it's just in so many decks. Yeah, it's going to win at a high rate just because in most of the decks. Although in our study, I believe it's in like sixty-five percent of decks or something. It's a little bit lower than. Again, we had some of those confounding variables of some groups soft banning it. Um, so, number two most winning card. The card that's showing up the most in winning decks, number two, is Solemn Simulacrum. At 31% of winning decks had a Solemn Simulacrum in it. Now, to put that in perspective, Solemn Simulacrum does not even show up in the top 40 uh, cards in EDH Rex top top cards. Well, it's in between it's 40, 41. It's going to be between 40 or 50, or else you'd say top 50. Yeah, it's yeah. number 41 still really on far EDH down. Rex. Yeah. So in on EDH Rec, it's in 24% of decks, and we're seeing 31% Solemn Simulacrum in winning decks in our gameplay. Um, See, there's a lot of talk, and I'm, I'm, I might be convinced in either direction, that Solemn Simulacrum isn't that good. Yeah, I've heard that a lot recently. And, you know, honestly, like, there's plenty of decks I don't play it in. Here's what I think is going on, and I could be wrong. Again, sample size, grain of salt, all of that. I think it's possible that cards that put lands into play, especially non-green ones, hmm. are just better than we think. Because if we buy that statistic that the winning player 42% of the time has the most lands in play at the end of the game, then anything that puts a land into play becomes just... We're, we under, might we're to, undervaluing yeah. everything that puts lands in It's play. possible. And this is a colorless way to do it. So it just might be that if you're not in green, all the other colors, just that putting the land into play is just worth it. So like myriad landscape, even what's the, there's like small artifacts yeah. that just put for, for not very good value that just put lands into play. And we did the top 20 non-lands here. So myriad landscape, I don't know where it is. Just because yeah, 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 yeah. you're going to get swamp forest island, all this stuff in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that, but that's something that, but what I'm saying is that's something that anyone could play that could simulate this same, same effect of just putting lands into play. If you don't have green, you probably want Solemn Simulacrum and you probably want Myriad Landscape and anything else, Knight of the White Orchid that you can get your hands on that's going to put a You don't want Knight of the White Orchid because then you have to play White White for Yeah, it. true. That's a good point. That, <laughs> that doesn't overcome the disadvantage <laughs> unless you're in four color, but then it's White White. That sucks. Um, another really interesting one is Skull Clamp. So Skull Clamp appeared in 24% of winning decks uh, for us. Twenty-four, Nearly one in four decks in our entire sample that won had Skull Clamp. And it's our fifth most winningest card. And on EDH Rec, it's number 58. And, and it's in 20% of decks. Wow. So, Skull Clamp is powerful. I mean, I've talked about it how... I will create entire packages for that card. And I've said, I think in the past, when Skull Clamp is in a deck, it's the best card in the deck. Two of those samples are from you. Yeah, true. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the Shadowborn Apostle and two. the Amara deck, and both of them won. Yeah. But, I mean, this is over all 300 games, 24%. But I've, but I've seen Skull Clamp in gameplay just doing work. And I think you've seen it at your commander tables doing work too. It's so interesting that maybe it's because we put it in decks where we see all the one ones. Yes. And it might be good enough to go in just a lot more decks. Yeah. Although I would say like, I think it's more along the lines of, you know, when skull clamp is good in your deck, mm -hmm. it's hard to put it in a deck and it's not good because you just wouldn't put it in that deck. Right. Yeah. And so when it's in the deck, 
it's very good in a that A high deck. degree of confidence yeah. for when it's good, and when it's good, it's great. Right, exactly. That's the kind of card we want. Yeah. It's great. And then the last one is along the lines of Solemn Simulacrum. It was it was a um it was it was a surprising one on the list. I most of the list goes along pretty close with EDH Rec. They have a ton of signets and we see a little bit because we see like things like Lightning Graves and Cultivate and Kadama's Reach and things like things like yeah. that. This mana ramp that we already know is good. So at number fifteen on our list of winningest cards, in sixteen percent of winning decks is Burnished Heart. Uh, Josh, this does not appear in EDHREC's top 100 cards. I don't like this card. I know. You saw it and you're like, I don't like it at all. I don't like this card. It's six mana. To get two lands into play. To get two lands into play. Yeah. Um, I don't love it, but I, I have it in some decks. Uh, like if it's Mardu or something, I feel like I have to put it in there. It's Myriad landscape <sighs> as far as like... I don't put I put Mirrored Landscape in a lot more decks than Burnish Heart. Don't get, you almost yelled at I me. I almost yelled at you there. <laughs> I almost yelled at Josh. I think this is again is grain of salt, sample than... size, everything. I think there's two things possible that are going on here, right? It's possible that one of the other I'm I'm gonna say not Mudsta, because his games tend to be on the more competitive side. Um, and they were usually the more expensive decks in our sample and everything like that but it's possible commander clash or commander versus it's possible that um, one of the metas like very much likes they love burnish heart the card and think it's great and that's skewing the data slightly one of you guys tweeted us <laughs> tell us yeah tell us if that's true it's also possible and along the lines of solemn simulacrum that any card that puts lands into oh, play man. is just better than we think especially when it does it in non-green because if you're in red and white and black and blue, you're so hard up for this effect that you are willing to pay six mana because if you don't have the most lands in play at the end of the game, you're probably going to lose. I'm I, I'm not actually willing to, but <laughs> what if you're right? What if the data... I don't want to play Burnished Heart. I don't like this card. I like it when you can get it back with Sun Titan. I like it in Perforos, you know, when you need right. the mana ramp and it does two damage. Right. Uh, I like it when you can mess with the creature effects, like get it back over and over again. But just like in mono blue, just to be able to get two lands into play, it's just like the worst explosive vegetation ever. But it's still explosive vegetation, right? It costs two oh more. Oh my gosh. Yes, two whole more. It costs two more. But if you're in blue, what do you got? What are your options? It's solemn in that. And myriad I landscape. I don't play solemn in my mono blue. Should I play solemn in my mono blue decks? I don't know. I'm just, that's my theory. This data is crazy. This is, I mean, I'm at a loss for words. I think, listen, I think what we should take away is just those cards should go up a notch in our okay. estimation, yeah. right? They. It shouldn't be, it's not black and white. It's not like this was horrible. Now it's awesome. This is like, maybe I should consider this a little bit more and maybe I need to play it, you know. Or do you know what I can take maybe away I need from to this? Try it. If I if I'm like not ready to like in my own personal life to actually reach out to Burnished Heart and say come <laughs> be in my commander decks, maybe I pay extra close attention to and add that and add that extra land. You know what I mean? Like add that extra land because I need to hit the land drop. Make sure that there's some way to get lands on the battlefield, some way to like I don't know, like to be very cognizant of of ramp and the lands in this format. I think Burnish Heart's a little better than you think it is. I think the yes, it's a two two more mana explosive vegetation, but you can pay it in installments 
which I believe probably evens out to a one more mana explosive vegetation or sky shard claim. Um, explosive vegetation also not the paragon. Uh, you know, it's not the best. Again, one. it's not even a sky shard claim. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. just saying, and and probably <laughs> you're thinking of it like I have to pay that six right now, but probably you can pay it, play it on three, wait until a moment where you're going to maybe draw cards or counter something, and then do it. I I, yeah. I think I think you add it up and burnish hearts probably just better than you or I thinks it is, and that doesn't make it one of the best cards in the deck, but it might make it like the 63rd card in your deck. It's worth thinking about. Again, we don't know why. And, it, and you know what? It yeah. really is worth thinking about. And I think it's amazing that, you know, I think about Commander constantly <laughs> for years of my life. And this data is bringing up new ways of thinking about it. And you're right. There's there's a lot of things like confounding variables, all the things to think about, grain of salt, all that good stuff. But still, it's challenging my preconceptions. It's helping me understand the format a little bit better. And I think that I'm I'm like growing a little bit more. And we hope that all of you are growing out there along with us. Yeah, this data thing yeah. has been awesome. That's going to do it for now. If you want to delve deeper into that data, again, check in the show notes because we'll have posted it all. And uh, hopefully we'll have a little statement from Andrew down there too. Um, we're recording this a little ahead of time. So hopefully we got all that done. I hate promising things that I don't know are done yet, <laughs> but it should be done. It should be done. Uh, something you should do is go on over right now to cardkingdom.com slash command zone and find those burnished hearts and those sol solemn similar acrims and, uh, you know, buy a few of them up because... Do you know that Card Kingdom, uh, you can send in your your singles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can send in your bulk, your singles, all of your white cards, and they'll give you money back in store credit yep. and money so you can buy not white cards. <laughs> So you can buy black cards because those are clearly going to help you win the most. Yes, you should definitely do use, that. Use their buy list for all of your white cards. <laughs> Sell your white cards and buy black cards. <laughs> Upgrade. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Uh, and while you're there, maybe you want to pick up a, a, a playmat. You know, maybe like we know Rakdos does a little bit better than yeah. you're thinking. So maybe what's the Rakdos um, uh, Shockland called? Uh, Blood Crypt. Blood Crypt. Maybe you wanted some Blood Crypts or maybe you want, you know, some other cool. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, th I should say that they have the um, the Rakdos deck boxes that have that Blood Crypt art already on them. In fact, oh, cool. is there one back there? No, there's not. But I've seen it and it's out there. So you can find those guild sleeves and deck boxes and all that stuff from Ultra Pro because they make the coolest products. Okay. Oh, to the listeners. Oh, we did this out of order, but that's totally fine. To the listeners. So we're going to release our data with this episode. It's going to be in the show notes. Do you see anything in there that uh, you think we missed or that you disagree with any of our quote unquote conclusions? Are I was, you really asking this, Josh? They're going to tell me anyway, so <laughs> it's fine. Listen, I wouldn't characterize anything we've said as conclusions. We're just yeah. discussing what the data analysis Hopefully said. it brings yeah. up discussion from you too and that you guys are just arguing and talking and, and using the data that we have to make your own conclusions and really have a conversation down there in the comments. And I think, you know, I would encourage people, and, and I said this at the very start and I'll say this again at the end, which is it is 100% your immediate instinct to try and deny anything that doesn't go along with what you already thought, right? Burnished heart is bad. Yeah. White's just fine. Don't worry, I'm going to keep playing it. Yeah, and maybe those <laughs> things are true, right? Grain of salt, sample size, all of that. But maybe they're not. And being open to new ideas and new perspectives and data that's coming in will just ultimately make you a better Magic player because you'll be at least open to trying some things. And that's a way to find little edges 
Whereas if you're not looking and you're not open to them, you're never going to find them. So, all right, I'll get off my soapbox for that. And then we will talk about the end step, which is something cool outside the world of magic. All right, Josh. Okay. Uh, my anniversary is coming up. Okay. And uh, I'm going to cook an amazing dinner. And I was, I was explaining to Josh, I'm like, oh, I'm going to cook steaks. And I'm like, I love the way that I cook steaks. And I'm like, oh, well, I have an immersion circulator. It's kind of like a sous vide. And Josh is like, looking at me blankly. He's like, I don't know what any of those words mean. And I'm like, and immersion I'm like, Josh, circulator. And I'm like, Josh, you, you, you're a foodie. You love this stuff. And he's just like, and step it. Yeah. So, and I like to eat this stuff. I don't know how to cook anything though. So I have a, and you, by the way, you can get immersion circulators on Amazon for pretty cheap. They've gone down in price tremendously. Sous vide used to be only available in like top, top notch restaurants, but now it's available to anyone. Sous vide is like a brand of something? No, that's actually a, a, a French cooking technique, which is like under pressure. Oh, you know? okay. Um, no, not under pressure, under vacuum. There we go. Under pressure. <laughs> no, under vacuum. Uh, and so what the, the old used to do is they used to vacuum pack meat mm -hmm. and they would put it in a water bath and the water bath would actually just be at the temperature of the meat you want to eat. Okay. And immersion circulators do the same thing where basically I'm going to stick a steak in a plastic baggie, you know, with some, some garlic and some thyme, salt, pepper, all this stuff. And butter. I'm going to seal it butter. Yeah. And I'm going to seal it. I'm going to put it in this water bath and this water bath is only at like the temperature you want to eat your meat at like 140 degrees or something like that. And it just stays in there for like two hours. And so what it does is it cooks the meat so slowly that no part of the meat is overdone. When you have a steak mm. and you cut into it, it's like dark brown on the outside and then it gets like all different colors until it gets red on the inside. That's just naturally how things have to cook from outside to inside. But when you cook things slowly, magical stuff happens to it. We know this from barbecue yeah. where you or slow pork, cook like pork slow and stuff like that. Oh, when you slow cook stuff, it's just amazing and wonderful. And these immersion circulators just slowly bring the meat up to the right temperature. And then uh, it, when you first pull it out, because the whole meat is me <laughs> the exact right, it's like beautiful medium rare all the way through from edge to edge. It does look a little bit gross because there's not this beautiful caramelization right. on the outside. So then you get a cast iron pan and I get it screaming hot, and just, just hottest ever. Just touch it down and it just goes, and it just browns the outside, throw a huge pat of butter in there, just throw some butter on top of it. Again, just scorches the other side. And then when you pull the steak out, finally, you cut it in half. It's like a scorched brown, beautiful, like marred brown butter on the outside. And then it's beautiful, medium rare, juicy, holds all of its moisture all the way from edge to edge. And it creates the most beautiful steak you've ever made. And this comes out after my anniversary, so I don't have to worry about, and my wife doesn't care about magic. So this won't spoil my anniversary at all, but I'm looking There's forward no to that. There's no way she listens to it. There's no way she watches this. <laughs> you can just start talking trash yeah. about, about my wife right no, now. That's she's okay. a wonderful, I, I like the food talk. She's better. a wonderful person, but that's what I'm so excited about because you get the most beautiful steak and cook it well, and it's just. Jeez, man. I just got one question for you. When am I invited over? What are you cooking well, me a steak? I'm cooking steak pretty. No, no, I no, can't no, come no, for the no, anniversary. No, no, no. <laughs> soon, soon. We're gonna have, we're gonna make steaks. It's gonna be great. All right, deal. I'll buy the steak. You cook it. Deal. 
That's too good of a deal. That's too good of a deal. Oh my gosh. Let's do that. You're invited immediately. Okay. I just invited myself over to DJs. (laughs) Very excited. excited. I'm so excited. (laughs) Make sure you check out our sister podcast, The Masters of Modern. Alex Kessler and Ben Bateman. They talk about the modern format and all things competitive magic. You can find them on Twitter at the MMCast or right next to us at collected.company. That's your cue. That's oh, wait, no, 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 actually, this is my cue still, actually, because you can't talk about yourself. I can talk about myself. My name's Jumbo Commander. That's right. <laughs> you need to check out DJ's channel on YouTube, because if you go and you type Jumbo Commander into the search bar, his channel's going to come up. He doesn't just talk about Commander here on the Command Zone. You know how a second ago he said, I think about Commander 24-7, <laughs> all day, every day, all day, every day? All the time. That's DJ, and that's his channel, Jumbo Commander, and he's got all kinds of deck techs. You've got, you give people advice about what cards they should pick up at rotation. Yeah, that's popular. And that's honestly, that's something that I do. So when I'm filling out a cart of cards that I'm buying at rotation, I'm like, this needs to be a video. And so I put it together and let people know what cards I'm buying too. And yeah, it, it actually paid off. I told people, you, we both told people to, to buy like tireless tracker at rotation last time. And did you? I hope you did. You I know, you did. all those budget players out there are a little sad because we found out that expensive decks tend to win a little bit more and have a little bit of an yeah, advantage. You buy at the right time. You make your own expensive deck six months later. Yeah, exactly. If you buy when it's, che- when it's cheaper, when things are rotating or when they're sort of out of popularity and they're going to rise in price over time, your deck might be worth three, four hundred, five hundred dollars but that's not what you spent on it. And that's one way to do it. And DJ helps you on his channel by having all those videos. So Jumbo Commander, type it on the YouTube search bar and... Uh, and yeah. our editor is Josh Murphy. Murph. And special thanks to Jeffrey Palmer for the Living Card Animations at Living Cards MTG. All right, everybody. This is my, actually one of my favorites that Jeffrey's done. It might be like my second or third favorite. I like it because it goes in my mono black deck. It's like the... And that deck wins a lot. And, well, you're a Warcraft guy. It's like the Dark Portal. So yeah, there you go. It is like the Dark Portal. You're right. <laughs> All right, everybody. <laughs> thanks for watching. See you later. Peace. For further inquiries, send an email to commandcast at rocketjump.com or ask us on Twitter at JF Wong and at Josh Lee Kwai. See you later, alligator. Greetings, humans. (laughs) (laughs) Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.